If you haven't opened up yet, Mark chapter 8 is our text. We're in the Sermon in Gal- or Summer in Galilee series. We're just about at the end of it. We've got a couple more to go. And we're looking at the events of Jesus that took place in the northern part of Israel called Galilee. And as you find this passage, and I really, really hope that you're looking at there. I mean, I really hope every single person is looking right now at Mark chapter 8. Because I want you to see the very words that the Bible records for us. If I had my preference, I wouldn't be up on this stage behind this pulpit. That is actually my least favorite place to be. If I had my preference, we'd be in your living room, or you'd be in my living room, and we would just be walking through this and discussing it, and you'd be asking questions of me, and I'd be asking questions of you, and we would be helping to sharpen each other's faith. But I'm preaching, and you're listening, and they have equal importance. I have to preach the Word of God, and you have to listen by the Spirit of God. So let's see what he's going to say, because Jesus and his disciples had been on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He was preaching. He was ministering to the Gentiles. He miraculously fed 4,000 people, plus women and children. If you were here last week, you heard Matt Potter give that sermon. He leaves that region, and he crosses now to the other side, the side that's more dominated by the Jewish people. He's back in the Galilee region, and he comes to the district of Dalmanutha, the Bible says, in the region of Magadan. Look at Mark chapter 8, verse 10. That's where you get that information. Now, why that's important is he's back in Jewish dominant land. He's back in Galilee. And it's not long before those contentious Pharisees, who are the Pharisees, they're basically Jewish pastors and Jewish lawyers. There's a lot of Pharisees, and often when you see a group of Pharisees, there's a bunch of scribes. Those are Jewish lawyers, and they go together more often than not. And these contentious Pharisees, they come to him and they demand, and I want you to get this, you ready? I mean, you can look in your text and follow this, Mark 8. They demand that he proves who he is through a sign. If you're going to claim to be sent from God, then show us a sign from heaven, they say. But I want you to hear this. Jesus tells them, and I'm going to paraphrase it, he tells them it's over. There's not going to be any more signs for you. I'm done here in Galilee. He leaves, and Mark chapter 8, verse 22 tells us they come to Bethsaida. It's a fishing town. It's located now on the northeast uh, hub or uh, outer or northern part of the Sea of Galilee. It It happens to be the hometown of Peter and his brother Andrew. It's a place where he had done a lot of miracles, but the people there would not believe him. Now, by the way, is that not telling us something? I mean, don't we always pray, God, if you would just show yourself, if you would just speak to me audibly, if you would just do something miraculous, I would believe. Well, the Bible tells us that's really not true. That God did many miracles through Jesus. Jesus did many miracles in this very town, but the town rejected him. In fact, he says, woe to you, Chorazin. By the way, that word woe, have you ever heard of a, a Jewish person saying oya or oye? 
It means to be angry. It means to be full of grief. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. That's a terrible, terrible future outlook for Bethsaida. But then we get to verse 22 in chapter 8 of Mark. But then some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. So we've got a blind man, and we've got his friends who'd bring him to Jesus. Now look at the verse, verse 22. This is why I want you looking at it, because every word counts. Every word is important. Notice who is begging Jesus for a miracle. And it's not the blind man. It's his friends. Which is surprising because begging and pleading for help was the normal life of a blind man. And like the paralytic in Mark chapter 2, if you remember from a couple months ago that sermon, the blind man had extremely caring friends. They loved him. Now I want to reflect on that for a moment. Now this is something where now you have to have the spirit-aided discipline to actually ponder this. Because I'm going to ask you a question, maybe two of them. Do you have in your life godly friends who love you and take you to Jesus through prayer all the time? I'm not asking if you have people that say, I will pray for you, and then they forget. Do you have people that love you so much they beg and they plead with God on your behalf? Not everybody in here can answer yes to that, I am sure of it. So I'm going to actually flip that coin and come at it from a different direction. I think you probably know which direction I'm coming. Are you a friend to somebody else who begs to God on their behalf? Now, I'm going to tell you why this is so incredible of a question. It's not because I'm asking it. It's because begging is something that Americans don't do. I would just ask you, when's the last time, honestly, just answer it honestly, when's the last time that you fell on your face and pleaded and begged somebody for something? Now, there might be a few hands that would go up if I were asking for hands. I'm not. I'm just asking rhetorically. You think through that. But I'm going to probably guess that most of us, me included, that's probably been years, at least since I was a little kid throwing a tantrum, for not getting the gift that I wanted for my birthday. When's the last time that you have taken somebody to God through prayer and pleaded and begged? That's a little different than ask, right? I'm not saying, God, would you please work? I'm talking about God. I'm asking over and over and over for my friend whom I love. I'm asking that you do something, and you do not give up. You do not give in to discouragement. You prevail through the, the barriers of prayer, and you, plunge, you punch through it, and you get into the throne room of God, and you plead over and over. And when's the last time you've done that for somebody else? See, if we're to be a church, if Cornerstone is going to be a church, 
where we can find deep and abiding soul-to-soul relationships, which is our aim, which is our goal, and then we've got to learn to do this. You've got to learn, and I've got to learn, to bring people to Jesus and plead on their behalf. But we should look a little bit deeper into the world of blindness, because in that day, blindness actually was very, very common. They didn't have braille, they didn't have seeing eye dogs, they didn't have laser treatment or corneal transplants. In fact, there was no understanding, I'm telling you, not even a smidge of understanding, they had none of it, of the pathology of blindness. They had no sunglasses, they had no protection against the damage of the sun's reflection or the blowing sand and dust. Blindness was a common problem in the days of Jesus. And there simply were no cures. So it was very common. If you go into a city, anywhere in Israel, you're going to see blind people whose unseeing eyes were caked with crusty excretions. And they're covered, their eyes were covered with swarms of flies begging at the city gates. I've seen them when I've gone to Haiti. And doctors in that day, they had bizarre concoctions that you could actually purchase with money that claimed to heal blindness. I'll give you just one of them. One of the cures was a salve made from rooster blood mixed with honey, and you had to smear it on the eyes. I think you can guess probably how effective it was. But in that day, the common belief viewed blindness as a curse given by God for either personal sin or if you were born that way, it was your parents' sin. Now, I'm going to say that again because you're going to see this in Scripture. If you're blind in the days of Jesus, then the people around you viewed you in one of two ways. If you became blind, by the way, Mark Mark chapter 8, this man was able to see at one point. He became blind. So the, the prevailing belief would have been that he had sinned so badly that God cursed him with blindness. If he was born blind, then the blame shifted to his parents. You might remember the disciples' question to Jesus in John chapter 9 when they saw a blind man. They're walking through Jericho, I think it was, or they're walking through a city. And they said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That was the belief system. So if you're blind, somebody had a sin, either you or your parents. So that's the belief. You've been cursed by God. God's angry at you. You're living under his judgment. Now, if you're blind today, probably nobody's going to be thinking that. But if you're blind in the first century A.D., everybody's thinking that. So you can imagine what it would be like to live in a religious culture where suffering was profoundly believed to be punishment for sin from the hand of God himself. So blind people were considered cursed. They're considered unclean. They're defiled. Did you know this, by the way, that they're not even allowed to come into a Jewish synagogue for prayer and listening to the law of God? They're, not even, they're barred from that because they're unclean. Pharisees and Sadducees considered them 
untouchables, carriers of spiritual defilement. Now, I want you to hear all of that as you go back into verse 22. Now, hear the begging request from the blind man's friends. Look what they say. Everybody look at your text, if you would. They begged him to what? Well, that's a little odd, isn't it, to touch him? Wouldn't you think they'd be begging him, begging Jesus to heal him? There's an importance there. There's no rabbi on the planet that would have touched that blind man. You touch him and you become spiritually unclean. Now let's open our own eyes for a moment because there's another layer below physical blindness in the Bible. There's spiritual blindness. And there's nowhere in the Bible that talks about it more than the book of Isaiah, which says in chapter 29, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of, out, of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Well, what is that day that Isaiah is prophesying? He's telling you and I that the day is the day of Jesus when the Messiah comes. And the deaf are going to hear and the blind are going to see. And he's going to open the, the physical ears. He's going to open physical eyes. But there's another layer that's really in the mind of Isaiah. He's going to open spiritual ears. He's going to open spiritual eyes so that you can understand how much God loves you, the enormity of the problem of sin, and that the Messiah came to take care of it. You see, when God opens spiritual eyes, he's enabling the person to perceive and understand the gospel. Now, this is absolutely critical. If you read Mark chapter 8, and you come away from it saying, well, that was really awesome that Jesus opened this man's eyes and gave him his sight back. You're coming away with an electrifying story that absolutely pitters away out of your mind in 10 minutes. There's a whole other world to this story. It's about the gospel, and it's about the eyes of the heart being opened. I want you to think about those that you love who cannot spiritually see or hear. I mean, reflect on that for a moment. I have people in my life that I love very much that are deaf and blind to God. I would imagine you probably do as well. Isn't it crushing? Isn't it grievous? Doesn't your heart break over and over for them, I want to give you some words of hope. The only one who can open their eyes and their ears to see their problem with sin, to see the enormity of God's love for them, to see the salvation that's available to them, the only one that could do that is Jesus. That's what this story is about, at least in part. And the privilege of every Christian, and Christian, I want you to hear me. If you're a brother and sister in Christ, here's your mission. Here's your privilege. Here's your high joy. You can bring spiritually deaf and blind people to Jesus and plead through prayer on their behalf. And look what Jesus did, verse 23, when they did, when his friends did. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. I read a study that used brain scans, which is all the rage right now in psychiatry. 
use brain scans. You can do this, and the brain lights up in different parts of the, of the brain when it's stimulated. And it shows that when a person goes blind who could once see, the other senses actually increase, like hearing, smell, and touch. That's proven. So I wonder, maybe you do as well, what that blind man felt when the creator of the universe takes his hand and walks him away from the noise and the smells of that village. I mean, what's going on through the, the touch of the hand of Jesus? I was a little shocked in Africa two years ago when I went over to Dungu to Restoring Hope Ministry, our Badiswan L'Espoir, that's our house of hope that we built over there. When I was over there, I was driving through the city and I saw several times men, two grown men, walking down the road holding hands. I had never really, I didn't know what was going on. I asked Pastor Bagu, who was with me, I said, Bagu, what are they doing? Is that, is that a homosexual relationship? Or is that a gay couple? And he goes, no, Pastor Tim, you don't understand. That's what close friends do in Africa. If they're best friends, they often will walk hand in hand. That's an expression of their love for one another. And it dawned on me again that we're created to respond to touch, and it is in touch that a world of feelings are communicated. Do you not wonder what this blind man felt when Jesus, God in flesh, took his hand? That had to be amazing. Jesus, who came to provide salvation for those who rebelled against God, whose very hand had never sinned, that very hand would be pierced by a nail and fixed to a cross. That hand held the blind man's. Can I presume to tell you something which I believe with all my heart? There are going to be times in eternity where I will find those of you in Christ walking down streets of gold holding the hand of your Savior. I absolutely believe that. What a moment that's going to be. My own eyes have been opened more fully in the past couple of years how compelling it is that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's not, listen, it's not lecturing our loved ones who aren't obedient to Christ. It's not scolding them. It isn't pronouncing doom upon them that's going to lead them to repentance. It's God's kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. And Jesus did what no rabbi of his day would have done. He holds this man's hand, and it's in that touch that he begins to unravel the lies that he had to have believed that God had cursed him, that God hated him. But before we go any further in the story, I need to tell you something that is going to be very helpful for you to understand. You can divide the three to three and a half years of ministry of Jesus into three very different acts, like a Broadway play. And the curtain drops after each act. Now, if you can remember this, try to think on this. Act one was his public ministry, primarily to Galilee. Act two 
is his private ministry to almost only his disciples. Act three is his passion, meaning his suffering and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. So you've got his ministry in Galilee, act one, his private ministry to his disciples, act two, and his suffering, death, and resurrection, act three. Two and a half years, he's in act one. He's ministering publicly, mostly in Galilee, but the curtain eventually drops, and I want you to hear something. It's going to drop right after this miracle. It's the final miracle in Galilee. He's moving to Act 2, and he begins to focus almost exclusively on his disciples. Now, please hear me, because his disciples are as blind as this man. And you're about to see that. In fact, look at verse 18. You just got to look back up a little bit. Mark chapter 8. He said to them, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? And then he asked them in verse 21, do you not understand? Their, the eyes of their heart are not yet opened wide enough. There's more blind people in this story than just the man whose hand Jesus is holding, and their eyes must be opened too. So what is he going to do? Verse 23. Took the blind man out of the village, and he does something that is odd. He spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him. Many years ago, at the beginning of my career, I was intending originally to be a mental health counselor. I worked in a psychiatric center for five years among adolescents. And it was not infrequent that a, an out-of-control teen would spit on a counselor. And I always found it revolting. And when I read this, I find it equally revolting. And I'm wondering, Jesus, why did you spit on the man's eyes? Well, some people are going to tell you that he had to get the crusty matter out of the eyes in preparation for healing. Otherwise, he can see, but he can't open his eyes. Adam Clark says that in his commentary. Others will point out that there's a universal belief that spittle contains healing properties. By the way, what do you do the moment you burn your finger? Most of us stick it in our mouth. There's an ancient belief that spit actually has healing properties. But the text never tells us why but what happens next actually deepens the mystery because Jesus has never, ever healed in two stages before. Look what happens. He spit on his eyes and he asked him, do you see anything? And the blind man looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. So he can see something, but he can't see something clearly. And now you've got the disciples. There's got to be now a growing realization in the minds of the disciples. Wait a minute. We're just like him. We see some about Jesus, but there's a whole lot that we don't see very clearly. And I want to talk to you about that for just a moment. Because I'm going to level the playing field because we all are in one group. If you're a Christian... You can see, but you don't yet see clearly enough. Same with me. I understand things about God. I understand things about his word, but I don't understand enough, and I don't understand God enough. I still chase 
after the luster of the things of this world. If I could see God clearly and my future clearly in eternity, then what's in this world would grow strangely dim and would have no appeal over me. The fact that it does have appeal for me and for you and temptation can grab our hearts to pursue it means you don't quite see clearly enough. And I'm just like you. See, is not our spiritual maturity a gradual process? Is not Jesus Christ the author and perfecter of our faith? Are we not often like the Father in Mark 9, 24? I believe, help my unbelief. But it's so easy, Christian, isn't it, to get discouraged when your faith seems to continue to be so weak and you struggle with sin week after week, day after day. We stumble, we doubt, we get so discouraged because shouldn't we be past the struggle by now? I mean, I've been a Christian for several years, you might be saying in your mind. I should be further along than I am. But I want to tell you, do not forget that this miracle that you're reading along with me is done in the classroom of discipleship. It is just as much for the disciples as it is this blind suffering man simply put jesus is saying to the disciples after all this time seeing what i have done and hearing the truth you still do not understand fully who i am and what i came to do the healing of the deaf man in mark 7 was a hearing test for the disciples this guy's healing is a vision test and they failed both Yet Jesus is so patient with us. He knows how to open our eyes. He knows how to increase our faith. Look at verse 23. He laid his hands on the man's eyes again. He opened his eyes. Now look at this. This is your future Christian. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Now will the disciples see clearly? Let's answer that. Look at verse 27. Jesus is going to be like an optometrist here. He's going to ask them to read the chart on the wall. He's going to ask them two questions, and they seemingly come out of nowhere. Verse 27 happens on the heels of healing that blind man. He says, it says in Mark 8, 27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea, Philippi, and on the way, he had just healed the blind man. He asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told them, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. And the answer to the vision test for Israel is they failed. They don't see Jesus as the prophet, priest, and king. They don't see him as God in flesh, the Messiah, the one to lay down before in worship. So now he asks another question in verse 29. And now this one is about his disciples. He says, listen, look at the wall chart, and I want you to read this line. Who do you say that I am? Who do you understand me to be? What do you think I came to do? And Peter raises up his hand, as he often would do, and he answers the test. You are the Christ. The anointed one sent by God on a mission to save his people. I I just got to remind you, Christ is not the last name of Jesus. 
They didn't have last names. It was Jesus, son of Joseph, Jesus, son of God, Jesus, son of man. Christ is a title, and it means the anointed one who is sent by God for a reason. And Peter saw it. He passed the vision test. His mind understood, at least it seems so, until Jesus moves his eyes to the next level down. And he begins to show him something in verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. No mystery, no stories, no parables, plain truth, easy to see, easy to understand. And will Peter pass the test? Look at verse 32. He took him aside and he began to rebuke Jesus. Do you know what the word rebuke means? It's translated from a Greek word that is the same word in verse 30 for strictly charged. It means to forbid. When Jesus strictly charged them to tell, some, uh, tell nobody what happened, it means he forbade them. That's what the word rebuke means. Peter's saying, I, I forbid you. I forbid you to talk about your suffering and your death. And we've seen somebody try to get Jesus on a different mission before. Do you remember that? All the way back to the beginning, his name was Satan. So Jesus rebukes the devil who was putting these thoughts into Peter's head. Peter could see, but his vision was blurry. He could believe, but he couldn't quite yet believe the plan of God. So Jesus must open his eyes to the whole gospel. And the truth is this, the anointed one, Jesus, was sent by God to save his people by losing his own life. But he would not stay in that grave. He would rise again, and he would make forgiveness possible for believing sinners of every generation, every skin color, every ethnic group, every age bracket, every socioeconomic status. That's the good news of the gospel. Do you see how this healing of the blind man is a whole lot more deep than just physical vision? It's all about his disciples because he's now moved in to act two. And his disciples' eyes must be opened. But I want to end with a couple questions. What is it that you and I should see in this final miraculous event in Galilee? What's our takeaways I'm going to offer very briefly three. They're going to be one after another. First, the compassion of Jesus continues to amaze us. Even in faithless Bethsaida, the moment anyone came to Jesus for help, he helped. That's convicting. You ever have somebody that hurt you? Betray you? done more damage in your life than nearly anybody else and maybe more than anybody else and finally they come back and ask for help what would be your response would you have the compassion of jesus flooding your heart spilling over to that person secondly this is the only instance of a two two-stage healing in, in the entire bible 
And it happened for a reason, and the reason was to teach the disciples that they are still in need of their own eyes opening. You want to hear the worst thing I have ever said to the Lord? At least it's the worst thing that I can remember ever saying. It was 1993. I'm in Marietta, Georgia. I'm a youth pastor. I'm in my office. I've got the Bible open, and I said to the Lord, God, I don't know what else there is to learn in the Bible. Isn't that crazy? You know what the Lord did? I mean, oddly enough, this is exactly what he did. He dropped scales from my eyes, and every time I went into the Bible, I began to see things that I had never seen before. And he was gently whispering, Tim, your eyes have a long, long way to go before they are fully open. And he could still say the same thing to me. He is the author and the perfecter. He is the eye-opener. And there are many, many more beautiful, beautiful things to learn about our Savior. The third, and perhaps most comforting for us, Jesus is patient with his disciples. He is equally as patient with you. Same with me. And he will work over our lifetime to open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see and that we can comprehend and that our faith could grow, that we could overcome sin, that we could get doubt out of our lives, that we could get faith in place of anxiety and worry. All of this is our future, Christian. He will never give up on you. He's committed to you for the long haul, and he will not swerve from that mission. There is absolutely no way he could. He will never leave you or forsake you, the Bible says. So if you're struggling, and you're in a bit of despair because you should be further along in your faith, can I just remind you that God knows exactly what he's doing, and he will help you get there. Get in his word, walk with him, Ask him to open your eyes. And that is a prayer he's always going to answer. If you have spiritually blind people that you love, can I just encourage you to do what this blind man's friends did? Take them to Jesus. Take them in prayer to him. Plead on their behalf for Jesus to open their eyes. Watch what he's going to do. It's going to be in his time. But watch what he is going to do. It may not be instantaneous. It may be gradual. But when he opens their eyes, they're going to see clearly the love of God. So don't give up on them, for God has never, ever, ever given up on you. Amen? Let's pray.